Let's turn together to uh, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We're on this um, this series. It's going to be a long series because we're only in Exodus, of course. That um, concerns God's covenants. God's covenants. You say, well, that sounds kind of boring. Covenants when it's not something that we normally think about. A covenant is a a solemn and binding agreement to do something important. Once it's been entered into, it was usually entered into by a blood sacrifice, and once it's been entered into, the person who swore the oath must perform the oath. If they do not perform the oath, then there are punishments, as it were, or there are curses that come upon that person. We find in several places, um, Jeremiah 34 is an example, that people made an oath before God to do a certain thing. In In Jeremiah, it was to release certain slaves to their liberty. And they thought they were being religious and being good for doing that. Well, they were. It was a good thing, and it was about time that they did that. But then they took them back again because uh, life was too hard without these slaves to work for them. So they took the slaves back again. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, came to them and said, because you have not kept the words of the covenant that you made before me, These curses are going to come upon you. God takes covenant breaking very seriously. You say, well, why is that? Why do we need to say that? Well, for the simple reason is that God himself makes covenants and God is not a hypocrite. If God gets so incensed when human beings break covenants that they have made, and he himself makes covenants, then of course it would be a contradiction of his very nature for him not to perform the covenants that he's made. And that is the main purpose of this series, to understand the covenants of God. What are the oaths that God has placed himself under to do? And it's so important that we understand that. Now, the first covenant in Scripture is the Noahic covenant. And all of you know what that covenant's about. Well, I hope you do. Moreover, all of you can tell me that you, if you believe that God made that covenant, and I hope that you did, you do, all of you can tell me on what basis there is not going to be another universal flood upon the world. God's oath not to do that. Do you see? So on the basis of the fact that God made a covenant not to do it again, not to bring a global flood again, we can have confidence that there's not going to be another global flood. That's it. Take it to the bank. It's done. It's not going to happen. But God makes other covenants too. And in exactly the same way, the 
oaths that God makes in those covenants mean exactly what they say and God must do them. He must do them. You say, well, he's God. He can do anything he wants. He can't go against his own nature. He can't go against his own word. If he could, well, he wouldn't be God. And he wouldn't be good. And he wouldn't be truthful. And we serve a good and truthful and faithful God. That's absolutely fundamental. We wouldn't, what is the point of worshipping a God who doesn't mean what he says? Who can take a solemn oath and then say, well, I'm, you know, nobody can, uh, nobody can stop me from changing my mind. Because I'm more powerful than everybody else. What, I mean, what kind of a worship service would we have if we believed God was like that? Our worship service wouldn't be like this. Our worship service would be like a pagan worship, worship service where we're trying to appease God all the time so that he doesn't, you know, just get ticked off with us. Because why? I don't know. He woke up out of bed with a headache this morning. And so he's decided to go and curse a city or, or to curse you and to bless somebody who doesn't deserve it. That was what the uh, pagan gods were like. And that leads, of course, to all kinds of heinous uh, crimes in the service of supposed worship, sacrifices of human beings and so on. Because of the nature of the God, do you see? God, the true God, the only God, is not like that. He calls those things abominations. Because his character is good. His character is loving. John tells us God is love. God is truth. Okay. So if God is love and God is truth and God makes these covenant oaths that he enters into, I can absolutely guarantee you on the word of God himself that these covenants will come to pass precisely in the way that God has sworn to do them. And here is the challenge to faith. The challenge to faith is, well, he hasn't done it yet. So perhaps because he hasn't done it yet, Maybe he's done it in a spiritual way. Maybe he's done it in a, a way that, you know, we just kind of need to take those words that he swore and we need to kind of spiritualize them a little bit. Yes? No. Absolutely not. God has made covenants as we saw here with Abraham, or a covenant with Abraham. The covenant involves three different Aspects or main aspects. One of them is that through Abraham, although he's getting on in age and so is his wife, they are going to have children. Through one of those children, Isaac, a lot of uh, a nation will come. The nation, that nation, is Israel, and to that nation, God will give all kinds. of 
of promises. Through that nation, and particularly a, a certain individual who is going to come from Israel, all of the families of the earth also will be blessed. That's us if we're not Jews, okay? The Israel will be given a land by God. That's also part of the covenant. And in promising these things in Genesis 15, God also says to Abraham, he says, your people, they will be strangers in a a strange land for 400 years, but I will bring them out of that land with many possessions into the land that I promised them. And then 400 years go by. And as we saw, Moses, 400 years after Abraham, Moses grew up in Egypt, grew up in the royal family, gets in trouble, has to flee and goes to the land of Midian. The land of Midian is across what's now Saudi Arabia and across the the Gulf into that part of the land there, okay? That's where Midian is. And he's there and he's being a shepherd. And he forgets what's going on there in uh, Egypt. I mean, he's there 40 years. And then one day, there he is with his sheep. And he sees something strange up on the mountain. He goes up into the mountain. And he sees this bush that's burning. Although the bush is not consumed by the fire. And then God speaks to him out of that burning bush. So he got his attention. And then got him up there. And then God speaks to him and says, you, yes, you, you're the one that I've chosen to go back into Egypt now and bring my people Israel out of Egypt, exactly in line with what God had said 400 years earlier to Abraham. And he said, this is the sign. This is the sign that I'm going to give you. You, after you've gone back there and done all of this, you're going to bring the people of Israel here, right here. And so we're in Exodus 19, and that's what we read about here. This is Israel before God at Mount Sinai. And it is uh, an astonishing chapter. I'm not going to um, read the chapter out and then... um, Go back over it. I'm just going to go over it with you. Hopefully, in that way, if you will open your Bibles to it and read down with me, uh, you'll be able to see what's going on here. The first thing, though, that I should point out is that the prophecy of 400 years previously has been fulfilled, and it has been fulfilled literally. God said that he would... Moses would bring the people to that mount, and here they are. Folks, God means what he says. It is not up to us because of the passage of time or because of circumstances. It is not up to us to spiritualize the word of God or make it mean something it doesn't say. God waits a long time sometimes to fulfill his word. Well, it's a long time to us. It's not a long time to him. 
But that doesn't mean he's not going to fulfill it. And it doesn't mean that we have any kind of a right to say, oh, well, when he said that, he really meant this. No, no, no. I do not want to stand in front of God and explain why I didn't take him at his word. Because not taking God at his word, okay, is not an example of faith. It's an example of unbelief. Only faith looks at what God says and says, okay, I'm going to believe that. As difficult as it might be in our context, in our historical circumstances, to believe that, that's what I'm going to believe because that's what God says. That's true faith. That's true reliance upon God. That is the kind of faith or dependence upon God and his word that is necessary for a person to be saved. And what they have to believe is this. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came into the world and died on a Roman cross for their sins, and he bore their sins upon his own body. That if anyone trusts in that, believes in that, that Jesus carried their sins, then they will be saved. Uh, The bad news is, it doesn't have to be bad news, because you can believe that bit that God said, yes? But if you choose not to believe that, the bad news is, you'll stand in front of God in your own unrighteousness, and you'll have to explain to him how good you are. This is the God that you'll stand before. Let's read about it. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Again, that's in fulfillment of what God had said already to Moses. And Moses went up to God and, sorry, the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Wait a minute, Paul. I don't read in the book of Exodus about Israel having a bunch of wings that they're flying, you know, across the the sands with what does God mean he was using figures of speech obviously but the idea is that God carried the people of Israel out safely and swiftly we use metaphors all the time God uses metaphors too but the idea is that God brought them out okay And now, therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What God means here when he's addressing, well, two, three, four million people is this. The people of Israel, the literal Descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they believe in the word of God and they believe 
in the Messiah of God, who is Jesus, they will become the greatest nation in the world. And through them, all of the other nations will be blessed. Has that been fulfilled yet? You can say no. Okay? Because the answer is no. It obviously hasn't been fulfilled yet. Okay? Israel's far from being the greatest nation on earth. But one day they will be, according to God's promise here. And he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses is to go and tell the children of Israel assembled uh, below that they will be a kingdom of priests and a particular special nation before God. Question. Have Israel ever represented other nations as priests before God? You can say no. Okay. The answer is obvious. It, 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 no. Okay. Far from it, actually. You see, priests represent others. They don't represent themselves. They represent others before God. So Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests, which means they will have to represent non-Israelites. Do you see? They will have to represent Gentiles. So the idea appears to be here that at some time in the future, the nation of Israel will represent the Gentiles to their God. And through that witness, they, the nations, will be drawn to God. And we'll have a one world government. Government just not the one that's been planned by the World Economic Forum. But it appears here from what God is saying that Israel, this is going to be believing Israel, not Israel in rebellion like it is right now, but believing Israel will be, as it were, used by God to reach all of the other nations and bless them. That has never happened in history. But on the basis of what God says here, it's going to happen. The world to come in the next kingdom is going to be a very different kind of a world. So what this is really is a commissioning of the people of Israel. Even though Israel have not been up to the task for thousands of years. And certainly not now. The people of, the Jews generally are an unbelieving people. There are some uh, Orthodox Jews, but the Orthodox Jews, remember, are Christ rejecting Jews, so they're in, still in rebellion and disobedience. But most Jews are actually atheists today. Did you know that? Most Jews are atheists today. So this is not being fulfilled today. 
And as a footnote here, I ought to say that we need to be clear about that. Just because God has made these promises to Israel, and they will certainly come to pass, does not mean that we treat present Israel as if they are, you know, wonderful in every aspect of what they do. That would be a ridiculous way of interpreting the word of God. They are sinners just like you and I are. They do evil just like every other nation does. And they are ungodly just like every other nation. One day that will change, but today that's not the case. So here's Israel. They've been told that by Moses. And now... God is going to meet this people. Look at um, verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and, and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Yet you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. We'll go into that in a few minutes. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So this is the God that's going to descend on Mount Sinai. Does he sound like a God who can be approached easily? Not at all. Not at all. And this is... This is the main burden of this message. This is a God who keeps his distance. This is a God who we better keep our distance from. It's serious stuff. If they even touch that mountain when God has descended upon him, upon it, they are violating holy ground and they will be killed. So, look at verse 16 with me. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. This is how it started. So people are waking up in the morning and they're probably being woken up by thunder and they're seeing up on the mountain there, they're seeing seeing lightning flashes, and they're seeing a thick cloud coming over the mountain. That's the start of things. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. And so all the people who were in the camp trembled. Okay, who's blowing the trumpet? 
Who's blowing the trumpet? Angels are blowing trumpets. That's what's going on here. Okay? Angels are blowing trumpets. Whether they see the angels or not, we're not told. But we don't just have these, this, uh, this, uh, meteorological phenomena that's coming over the mountain, okay? Liberals would explain that away. We also have this fanfare, and it's very loud. Everybody is looking at that mountain, and they are wondering what is going on here. Where's that trumpet sound coming from? And I can imagine if it's being blown by angels on heavenly trumpets, it is a sound to hear. And so the camp trembled. This is millions of people, probably two, three million people, and they are trembling. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Can you imagine that, getting out of their tents, uh, following Moses to the mountain, and they're looking at this mountain, and they're hearing this trumpet sound? This was a very solemn journey. The things get even more scary here. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. Okay, so we're used to fires here, yes, in California. You've seen these fires raging, okay? And that the smoke, we, we are very well familiar with the smoke, yes? It just billows out, billows out, and it gets everywhere. Because, and it tells you something of the intensity of the fire, yes? We know when we're seeing this, these smoke clouds go up, especially if they're going up quickly, we know that that fire is incredibly intense. So this billow of cloud is going up, this billow of smoke, and it's going up intensely because the Lord is descending And it's like a furnace. It's roaring. This is an intense fire. And it continues here. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Now, furnaces roar. Furnaces roar. And that smoke billows up and billows up. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. This is God coming down and touching his creation. And when God does that, the creation quakes. This is the true God. This is the God that, uh, you know, has kept himself um, discreet from most of earth's history. Oh, he's there and there's plenty to reveal him. But when he actually comes and visits his creation, this is how he visits it. This is the God who created everything. And when he comes to his creation, the creation responds in this way. 
You ready to meet him? You ready to have a poly with him? You ready to go up with that such a God and to argue yourself into heaven that you're really a good person and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Is this what you want to do? I remind you, although we're going to look at it in a minute, I remind you, you don't even get the chance to do that because you can't even come to him. You can't approach him. If you do, you're dead. All you do is you look. You think. And hopefully, what you see will remain with you for the rest of your days. The whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, because God is about to speak, God is about to to break through as it were. Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. This is impressive stuff. No false deity was able to do this. Uh, I don't think right now when they're witnessing this, they're not thinking about uh, how imposing and how frightening the Egyptian gods were. They'd already seen God basically wipe them out in the, the plagues that he brought upon Egypt. He knew that they, those gods were nothing. They're false gods. I mean, they are demonic, don't get me wrong. They exist. I mean, under different names all the way through history. They're demonic powers, but they're nothing compared with this. Their focus now is not on all of the different options, okay, or religions that they can choose to believe in. Their focus is on one religion, one God, one truth. God speaks. Can you imagine standing before this God? The book of Hebrews tells us our God is a consuming fire. So let me, um, let me move to the, the next part here. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Well, who on earth would want to get up the mountain and get closer to this? This is human nature, folks. This is human nature. This was such a sight. It was such a phenomenal experience that they were attracted to it. So, yes, they were trembling, and yes, they were fearful, but they were also attracted to it. This is what is meant by the holiness of God. The holiness of God is something, it's not just his moral purity. 
It is his difference, how different he is than us. We think, uh, you know, this is normal and everything's the same and, and uh, anything that's different to us is abnormal. No, we're the abnormal ones. And we'll find that out when we stand before God, who is the normal. He is the standard. And God, his holiness, makes us afraid. But it also is attractive. So you have that tension. It makes us afraid. We want to back off, but we also are drawn to it. Do you see? Because it's so beautiful and it's it's holy and pure. So God warns Moses to warn the people, don't, don't start moving forward here. The people cannot come up. They have to stand where they are. They have to understand that they are not in a relationship with God that means that they can come up to God and parley with him. They can't do that. And anyone, anyone who has not been forgiven by God, who is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in that position. You, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you haven't accepted him as your savior, that's the position you will find yourself in before God when you stand before him. Don't think it will be this nice, you know, conversation over coffee with you giving your, you know, all of your good reasons for... um, God to accept you. It's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be you realizing how unclean you are, how sinful you are, how unforgiven you are, and you have God right in front of you like that. And it dawns upon you that you have been lying to yourself and have been lied to because Scripture presents God in this way to the sinner. Let's just uh, read a little bit more here and then we'll come to a uh, close. So God warns Moses to warn the people. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us. Set bounds around the mountain and consecrated. Oh, that should be enough, shouldn't it? Then the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Here's the thing. Even in a situation like this, sinners will not pay attention to the word of God. So God says, well, I know I said that, but you better go and warn them again. This is the arrogance of sin. 
So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. What we learn from this uh, third aspect is that there is a distance between us and God. And it's God-imposed. It's God-imposed. People do not go to heaven unless God decrees or accepts them. That's the truth. Is there a way of acceptance? Well, not this way. Not this way, okay? And he's just about to give them the Ten Commandments, okay? I don't have any other gods before me. Have you ever had any gods before God? Have you ever put anything before God in your life? Yes, you have. So have I. Don't lie. Have you ever lied? Oh, only once. That's enough. You've broken the law. You ever been covetous? Okay. There's no way through for you then. There's no way for you to extinguish this fire. Oh, but there is. But there is. You see, God came not like this to save people, but God came in the person of the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A human being. Yes, he was divine. And it's in Jesus Christ that he invites you into fellowship. It's in Jesus Christ that he shows you God's compassion and God's love. He dies for you. And you have to believe that Jesus has done this to make this aspect of God in Exodus 19 go away. And instead you face a loving God, a God who wants to be with you forever, a God who you can, you can break through, you can go right into God's throne room. You're a son. Which God would you rather face? One you can look forward to seeing. Yes, with some trepidation. I mean, he's God after all. But he accepts you as a father. Remember the, the story of the prodigal son when the son that goes, goes away and as soon as he turns and, and the father sees him, the, the father runs to him and embraces him. That's God. That's the God as he wants to be to you. That's the God who can be your father. That is God who is the savior. That is God who is uh, the one who loves you and will love you eternally. You're safe with him. Does it mean that God is schizophrenic? No. 
Now, but God must deal with sin, do you see? And if you have sin remaining in you, you can't approach to God. You must stay away from the mountain. You can look and you can consider, and hopefully in that consideration of the God of Exodus, you can go to Jesus Christ and get to God that way. But that means confessing to God, God, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I am not deserving of anything. I need your mercy. Please accept me and forgive me of my sins because I believe that Jesus carried them away for me. That's the basis of salvation. That is the message. That is the way to approach God. And if you, if you go through that route, you do ne- you never see God as a consuming fire. You just see Him as a loving Father who can't wait for you and He to meet. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us all to understand your holiness, your greatness. You are indeed, in every sense of the word, awesome. You inspire awe in us, Lord, and fear. But then love deals with that fear. And we know, Lord, that we can come to you if we come to you in the way that you've ordained, which is through Jesus Christ, your Son, and his humiliation and his sacrifice for us. That is the way of salvation. That is the way of approach to God. It is always accepted by you. We confess our sins. We heap them on Jesus, and we accept his righteousness in in place of our unrighteousness. I pray, Lord, that everyone will understand the burden of this message this morning. They don't have to face a God who is a consuming fire. They can face a God who is a loving and accepting Father. For so you are, Lord. Amen.